Hey there, welcome to another edition of Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are talking about defying expectations with Cecily Strong from Saturday Night Live. Her new memoir touches on some serious stuff, grief, relationships, COVID, uh, which might come as a little bit of a surprise to some people, considering she's also created some of the funniest, most memorable characters on SNL over the past nine seasons. Uh, She's going to tell us what it was like to have to film herself on her cell phone in order to create SNL during the pandemic. Uh, We're also going to talk to Toronto rapper Shad about what it's like to be known as the nice guy of hip hop. Uh, We are going to hear a song from him and we're going to find out how nervous he was to meet some of hip hop's biggest legends for his Netflix show. So that is the plan, at least for now. But you never know. They don't call us live wire for nothing. So stick around. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going well. I'm indoors uh, where it is under 100 degrees. So that feels like a win these days in Portland. (laughs) Yeah. Are you staying cool where you are? Oh, yeah. We got a new air conditioning unit upstairs. Ooh, la la. I feel so fancy. Like I woke up this morning, there was no sweat on me. (laughs) Hmm, What a novel experience in summer 2021. Hey, Molly, are we recording this thing? We're rolling. All right. uh, I guess let's go. Take it away, Elena. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, comedian Cecily Strong, plus music from the rapper Shad. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank! Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We have a really fun show in store for you uh, this week. We're going to talk to Cecily Strong from Saturday Night Live about her new memoir. We're also going to hear some music from Shad, the Juno Award-winning rapper from Toronto. And also, we're going to get the answer to the listener question we posed, which was, what's something that people would be surprised to learn about you? That's all coming up in a little bit. First, though, of course, we've got to kick things off with the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is some good news happening out there in the world. 
Elena, what is the best news that you heard all week? Oh, man, this is uh, Baltimore good news. Balmer? Yeah, Balmore. Yeah, Uh, sure. (laughs) So they've added five new members to the Baltimore Museum of Art Board of Trustees. This is not the story I was expecting you to start with, but okay. I mean, it's huge. It's it's huge news for all of us. But no, it's not Nancy Pelosi, who's a famous Baltimorean, whose father was Mm -hmm. mayor of Baltimore. No, it's not Michael Phelps, although I hear he has a stunning art collection. It's not even Jada Pinkett Smith, the graduate of the Baltimore Performing Arts High School. No, uh, if you could think of a famous Baltimorean who should be on the board of trustees of an art museum, who would you think? I am going to take a wild guess. Does the person need to be alive? <laughs> yeah, Edgar Allan oh. Poe is not. <laughs> oh, that was going to be my guess. I'm actually not kidding. Yeah. Okay, so who is it? Who are these these new additions? It's John Waters. <gasps> <laughs> I just watched a documentary about Divine oh, yes. on Netflix, which ends up ultimately really being a documentary about John Waters, and uh, that is an amazing appointment. I think that's a great a great person to put on the board. Yeah, a truly iconoclastic person who no one has ever been like him. He put Baltimore on the map in, let's say, some really artful ways. Uh-huh. And one of the reasons he got asked to be a part of the Board of Trustees is because he has bequeathed in his will and testament 375 of the art pieces from his personal collection to the museum. So he's already given quite a bit both to the city of Baltimore and to this specific museum. But, you know, he had a stipulation. I could only imagine. <laughs> His stipulation was that they have to name the museum's bathrooms after him. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if you know anything about John Waters and yeah. specifically Divine, that is uh, uh, interesting, but not necessarily completely off-piste yes. intended <laughs> choice. Right. That is perfectly John Waters. <laughs> the best news I saw all week comes uh, from the greater Seattle area, where an eight-year-old named Maggie... Uh, Carasino, who was uh, homeschooled for the last year because, of course, everything was changed with schooling and stuff. I don't believe she was remote schooling. I think her mom was just kind of teaching her, you know, student-to-teacher relationship. So this eight-year-old Maggie Carasino, she was homeschooled during the pandemic, and her favorite class apparently was botany. And so her mom said, uh, well, for the lesson this, uh, this day, let's go down to a lake in Duval, um, and then you've got Rasmus and Lake, of course, in Duval, which people love. And that's where Maggie and her mom were hanging out. And Maggie is looking down into this lake, Rasmus and Lake, and she sees a plant that she just knows because of her eight-year-old mind and her studying of botany is not supposed to be in Lake Rasmussen. It's Egeria. And she says, Mom, I think that that is a plant that is invasive and is not supposed to be here. So they take a picture of it. They email it to uh, King County officials who look at the picture and realize, yes, in fact, that is an invasive species that is not supposed to be in this lake. And by the way, this entire area, this Snohomish uh, waterway is incredibly important to salmon in the region. So like this is an area that really needs to be as pristine as possible. They came out, they found this Egeria plant and they're like basically taking it out through some natural means. I mean, they're like putting some kind of natural poison on it, which is going to sort of keep it sure, out of the it lake. It won't harm the biome, but it will particularly right, harm that exactly. species. Nice. And they found that this was the only place where it was so far. It had not spread to other lakes. Oh, my god! So Maggie 
totally saved possibly all the salmon in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, my God. This eight-year-old Maggie Carasino. The other thing that they realized was because she, when the newspaper reporter comes out to interview her, she's just pointing at all these beautiful goldfish that are swimming around in the lake, which, side note, were probably thrown in as tiny goldfish. And this plant, this invasive plant, is something that people use for aquariums. So they think that somebody went and just dumped their entire aquarium with the goldfish and the plants into this lake. Oh, my gosh. And this would serve as a public service announcement. Please don't do that. No. But wow, amazing yes. for Maggie to have figured this out. Yeah. So next time you're in, in, enjoying a, a salmon dinner or just maybe at the Ballard Locks in Seattle looking at the salmon spawning, just know that it all pretty much happened because of eight-year-old Maggie Carasino. Uh, and that is the best news that I've heard all week. All right, our first guest on the show this week has been a Saturday Night Live cast member since 2012. Uh, she is known for her impressions and also her original characters, uh, like my personal favorite, the girl you don't want to get stuck talking to at a party, which she does on Weekend Update. She was also the co-host of Weekend Update for a while. Uh, she's in a new show called Schmigadoon, which is getting rave reviews. It's about a couple that's stuck in a town that basically operates like a musical uh, and if all that weren't enough, she's also just released a new memoir titled This Will All Be Over Soon. Cecily Strong, welcome to Livewire. Thank you for having me. Uh, we are huge fans of your your work on TV. And uh, this memoir is, is a really fascinating uh, and really personal read. Other than you, the main character in, in this book is, is your cousin, Owen Strong, um, who passed away from brain cancer when he was uh, 30. Did you have thoughts about writing a book before uh, you went through that experience with him? No, I mean, it, it, it's something that came up in talks with agents and certainly like, OK, well, this is a thing I may do someday. And, and I assumed I would be doing, you know, funny essays mm -hmm. or something. Um, so I was not thinking I would write anything like I have written. And I certainly didn't expect to write about Owen that I'd lost him because even with brain cancer, I was um, convinced he'd beat it just because of who he was and how positive and brave. And it just seemed like if anyone could do this, it, it would be him. Um, you had told your agent, I think uh, you write in the book as the pandemic was beginning that you were like yeah. hoping to write something. What was it like for you though to write like a memoir like this versus a, like an SNL sketch? For me, you know, all writing is kind of the same. Not that it comes out the same, but that I'm, it still feels like it's coming from a similar place. And I, you know, I usually want to write on Tuesday because I've trained myself to do that <laughs> on the show. Oh, really? So it's, so, and it's usually like, it's by that Tuesday, I'm kind of like, okay, I should write or something. And I just started dating somebody and, you know, we got to that point where it's like, you know what? I really like you. Let's say that we're dating. Let's be dating. And then, um, you know, four days later, he got COVID and we didn't even know he had COVID because it was so early on. He wasn't even allowed to get a test. Um, mm -hmm. But I had been, I just started talking with my cousin's oncologist at Duke, um, Dr. Henry Friedman. So we, I met Henry and then it was like the next day was Jack got COVID and I'm asking Henry, what do we do? Because we just knew so little. And so I quarantined for two weeks then I'm worried, do I have it? And I have this, you know, funky little 
thermometer because you couldn't get thermometers at the time either. And I'm like, I have anxiety and depression. I can't trust what I'm feeling. And I'm having to trust this little instrument. (laughs) But it was like, sometimes it would show me I'm 105 degrees or I'm 93 degrees. And so I was like, well, I'm, so I'm dead either way. But I then finally, I I got out, um, I booked an Airbnb and that was really right away. I started writing. Everything just started pouring into my head. There was space again. There was a little bit more space for it and not just like, (gasps) The panic of like, is is he going to die? Am I going to die? Just really afraid of everything during those two weeks. You do write in this book that you're a pretty anxious person. And I wonder if people sometimes have a hard time um, squaring that with your job as a person who like goes on TV and pretends to be Judge Jeannie Pirro and <laughs> is like very funny and seemingly kind of not anxious. You know, I think that's definitely true. People assume we have a lot more confidence. And I can say we because I know the people I work with, too. And really, you know, if we were kind of like very cool, collected people, we probably wouldn't be as funny as we are, you know. (laughs) You're listening to Livewire from PRX, and we are talking to Cecily Strong. She is the author of the new memoir, This Will All Be Over Soon. She's also on Saturday Night Live. Uh, we've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we've got much more with Cecily in just a moment. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork Mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing, that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic Drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com slash 
LiveWire to get 15% off your first order when you use LiveWire at checkout. ZBiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to ZBiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We're talking to Cecily Strong. Her new memoir is This Will All Be Over Soon. I'm curious about what it was like for you uh, as you were up in the Hudson Valley of New York with a couple of your friends. You're staying in this Airbnb and you you don't have the the daily ritual of, or the weekly ritual of creating SNL and your cousin has passed away, which you're still trying to process and your boyfriend has COVID and is not calling you back. Mm-hmm. How were you able to actually like, you said you write on Tuesdays just out of habit, but like, how are you able to actually write this book? Were you just keeping a diary and thinking maybe this will be the book? Yes, I certain I didn't even know it was a book. I I just knew I would write and my agents sort of were like it doesn't have to be a book, but but I think you should keep writing. I think it'll <laughs> be helpful. That sounds very much you. like a thing an agent yeah. would say. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I say that I mean I I really I am friends with my agents as well. Um they were my friends before being my agents and I trust them a lot. And so and it was it was a great exercise for me. Um a lot of days would, you know, I would write during the day and then I we'd make dinner. We had a, like a family dinner that we would do and Kevin would read what I'd written. So I, I didn't mm. even read any of it out loud until recording the audiobook. I think. Mm. But because it was such an isolating time, it sort of felt like I was writing to somebody. And so I did. I felt less alone. Either I'm talking to Owen or I'm talking to Jack, who's not there, or I'm talking to some nameless, faceless person intimate friend. And so that's, it was a way to communicate and not feel as isolated. It feels like it wants to be really immediate as well, this Mm. book. Like it wants to be about last year published this Mm. year and it's the way it's shaped and the structure, it seems like, um, you know, there's this other version of it that could be really novelistic and have all the symbolism in it. From the get-go, were you always interested in keeping that sort of connection to the period right before it came out? Yes, it was sort of, um, you know, there was like going back and forth, like, do I want to involve COVID this much? And then it was sort of like, well, yeah, I I have to because COVID is involved in my life and all of our lives. There's no way to ignore it at that point. And so that's why we wrote about it. And I think um, I don't know that I could write that the other novel that you're talking yeah. about, you know, with I don't know that I'm I'm a good enough writer for that. But I know I can be very honest and honesty, I think, is where that immediacy is coming from, too. And this is such a great literary tradition of people writing immediately after or during a disaster, like the keeping the diary during a period of community chaos mm-hmm. is is thousands of years old in this way that I think people are really going to cherish writing like like your book because we're still processing and totally. it really helps to have somebody have spent a significant period of time in that period thinking about it and working through it so we can check in right at that moment. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have not really um, <laughs> right. given themselves any time or space to understand that they mm-hmm. may have gone through something <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and are living with something that they weren't before now. Um, and so I would hope that because I'm someone who 
did end up taking that time for myself to check in every day. I hope that other people, I hope that people check in with themselves. Just yeah. like, do I have, I don't think I have some trauma <laughs> yeah. from yeah. this past this? year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why did I just start crying yeah. in the right. middle of the street? <laughs> I think that there's this feeling that, A, you, you want to check your privilege when you start talking about how traumatized you are by this. Right. Because we're all somewhere on this kind of, uh, you know, ladder of like how bad or good did we have it comparatively. Right. And then also it feels cliche to just be like, wow, that was a lot. But it was a lot and it was like it really impacted all of us. And I, I think you're right. It's odd. It's both over talked about and sort of not talked about enough. Right. That this was a really messed up thing that we went through and are continuing to go through. And I think, you know, it, it, we're all afraid, again, because of privilege to say I suffered when you know that so many people suffer worse than you. But I think it's more in the spirit of like, you don't have to tell other people. Just tell yourself. Just check in with yourself mm. and see how you're doing. You're not hurting anyone else by doing that. In fact, you may be doing other people favors by yeah. making yourself a little easier to be around, maybe. Uh, this is Livewire. We're talking to Cecily Strong from Saturday Night Live and Schmigadoon. <laughs> and also uh, the it new memoir. It will always make me laugh when people say <laughs> can, can it. it I just works. say? <laughs> can I just tell you, we chatted with Barry Sonnenfeld a while ago, uh, who was director of Schmigadoon. Yes. And when we said the word Schmigadoon, Elena laughed for five solid minutes. The show okay. wasn't even on television, no. just the name. I'm with you, Elena. I did the same. And then I, I watched every episode. I know the finale is coming up, so I'm a, I'm, I am your target market for both the title and the show. It's great. Yes. It's great, great, great. Me too. I am, I'm also the target yeah. market. Uh, you write in this new memoir about what it was like trying to make Saturday Night Live from an Airbnb in the Hudson Valley of New York. Yeah. And like your your friend who you're quarantining with is like now the prop director for this. <laughs> yeah. It's like an insane thing trying to make television that way. Like, what was that like for you? It was absolutely crazy. I mean, and especially as someone who knows is so bad with technology. And so, you know, I, we're getting all these weird apps and they're hack they're looking in our phones so they can see what we're filming. Uh -huh. And and even, they sent us, I would just get sent costume pieces from Amazon and talk to Ward Tom at Wardrobe, like, well, here's how we're gonna make this Janine dress. I think we should add these bows here. And so I was making those. And then Kevin was, I'm a horrible artist too. So Kevin would do all of the props. He made me a big box of wine, I think for Janine. Um, and then, and then we had this, they sent us this big green screen and then they, and so we had to hang it. And I remember coming into the room at one point and like, I, Kevin is ironing the green screen. <laughs> wow. It's just crazy. Yeah. But it gave us something to do. And, you know, there's a lot of weird, frantic energy. So that was a mm. good place to focus it. Uh, when you talk to somebody who's on Saturday Night Live, you sort of have to ask this obligatory question about their audition process. And you write about this in your book. I think you may have come up with the greatest audition characters like in the history of <laughs> SNL auditions. Uh, a New York cruise ship passenger trying to bring a fresh pineapple back onto the ship with her husband and demanding to speak to someone in charge when they won't let her. Uh, a chubby little boy thanking his waitress at a diner after a Saturday family meal and a Midwestern party aunt bragging about wearing her niece's size. <laughs> They're all people I have seen <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and enjoyed in real life. And was that, I mean, something that was just, you were just carrying her. And obviously you had done improv in Chicago, so you had been developing these characters. But I mean, is that sort of how it works uh, when you're in your line of work? Like you see somebody doing something and you just, you're some part of your brain goes, 
that's going to be universal for people for some <laughs> weird reason. And that's a character. Early on, I didn't do any impressions. I didn't think of myself as an impressionist. Once someone tells you have to do three characters and three impressions. So that's when I went like, okay, well, <laughs> what do I find funny? And that's how those came up. Mm-hmm. But I think um, now, I yes, I am more trained to see things that go, well, that's a character or an impression or something. My brain is more that way. But early on, it was just really throwing spaghetti at the wall. Huh. I mean, you also did a character from Eliminate, when, which I was a huge fan of, by the way. I'm glad Loved I wasn't Eliminate. the only oh, one. You are truly, I think you're the first person I've met who even knows what it is and is a fan. Somehow Thank you. you and I were keeping Eliminate going for a period of a couple of years back there in the 90s. Yeah. You do an Eliminate uh, Milwaukee dude. Uh, uh-huh. um, and, and also your your actual dating life is sort of a topic in this in this new memoir. And a thing that you said that I thought was really interesting, which I bet you a lot of people can actually identify with was you are pretty comfortable being single during the periods of your life when you're single. And your friends seem to be very worried about, about your singleness, <laughs> but it's them worrying about your singleness that is the larger hassle than being single. Right. Yes. Everyone kind of it would start coming up where people would be like, can I introduce you to someone? And it would be like, D- why? What's happening? <laughs> Is it bumming you out to sit here and talk to me right now to come to my house and not see a partner? Does that bother you? But I think, you know, it's they want to be helpful. It's coming from a good place. Sure. Um, you also, the Saturday Night Live family, you lost the uh, music director, um, Hal Wilner. Mm-hmm. And I know that was uh, very hard on you during the pandemic because you had a pretty close relationship with him. Sure. And I will say it's not even with Hal, it's not even that we were necessarily very close, but when you work with people, there is that closeness. It was, it's more that Hal was so eclectic and bizarre and such a character and like the first person that you'd see when you walk into SNL because he'll he'd draw your eye. So he's got like a big hat on and a big beard. And, um, and he was so friendly right off the bat because we had other friends in common. Because the other thing about Hal Wilner is that he knew everybody and worked mm-hmm. with everybody. And I had been emailing with Hal about a show over the hiatus. Mm-hmm. And so it was also another thing. Be like It's bizarre to be emailing with someone about COVID. And then they passed from COVID. And it was just that's how fast and how much of like a, a snowball this yeah. thing is. And, you know, Hal... The night he died, I think 600 or so people died in New York. And it's like, that's such a huge number to even imagine that those are people and they're people that are as big and singular as Hal Wilner, mm-hmm. you know? Right. We're talking to Cecily Strong. Her new memoir is This Will All Be Over Soon. Uh, she's also has been a cast member on Saturday Night Live, but I'm reading that that it's sort of TBD. Yes, it's still TBD. What does that mean? It, it means I, it's sort of because you have to understand there is COVID. So everything's a little TBD. Right. Yep. I've, of, I've heard about this COVID thing. <laughs> and I'm I'm allowing the new adjustment to the world to let things be more TBD. And mm. um, SNL's letting it be that way. But, you know, it's a, it's a, such a wonderful, supportive, hilarious environment. And the people there are so great. So it's it's a hard place to leave. And I think the show is kind of changing to allow people to do other projects at once and to just be more flexible. So there's a lot of reasons to stay too. Um, but I'm just not quite sure. Uh-huh. 
Uh, I feel like uh, when you talk to somebody who's been on Saturday Night Live, they describe it as being the most exciting, uh, sort of uh, engaged, thrilling process that also almost kills them every week and leaves yes. them feeling emotionally hollow afterwards. Like, <laughs> seems like a lot goes on. Like, what's yes, your experience yeah. in generally? <laughs> I think um, th- that's absolutely true. I can speak about it so glowingly because I've been away from it for a couple months. But yes, I mean, we don't get a lot of sleep and it is insane how emotional sketch comedy can be. And then it's, you know, it feels very isolating too, because it's so, you feel so embarrassed when you first get there to Mm. be sad about a sketch being cut or to, to be nervous. So I like to go to the newer people and just make sure I'm checking in and being like, Hey, I know that this really hurts. And it's okay that you're crying about your banana sketch being cut. (laughs) It's like, I I get it. I was told Dana Carvey cried in his dressing room and I'm sure I'll be like, here's my snot stains from a really bad night I had about something I'm sure that I can't even remember. You know, it's just, we go through these wild swings. This is why you have to stay on the show. A, you're hilarious, and B, you need to be there to sort of, you know, point out the snot stains. Point out the Take care of the the next generations. Um, Speaking of one of, I think, the greatest characters in SNL history, at least a character who I quote constantly when I say, Exactly, Seth. Um, where did the um, the the girl you don't want to get stuck talking to at the party? Like, did you have that experience, and then and create that person for Weekend Update? Well, I sort of it started as I was making fun of myself. Uh, Colin and I were trying to write an update piece early on. We were going through characters, and I think I said something like, "And you know, like that's really good for society." And then um, we were kind of, that's where it started and playing around with that. And then I I remembered a lot of my straight male friends telling me some stories about, you know, they'd see someone who looked pretty and they would talk to. And then it was like, oh, my God, the things that are coming out of this person's mouth were so crazy. And so it was a mix of all of that. And then I think Colin and I just love uh, malapropisms, too. So uh-huh. it's a way to play with that. You know, we wrote that in 2012, and it was sort wow. of the start of Facebook really being the big one. And now social media has made everybody kind of into that person <laughs> who gives themselves a platform and, you know, just kind of plucks things out and doesn't really understand any of these issues, but uses them to shame other people or to yep. talk down uh-huh. to anyone around her. Doesn't right. really, it's sort of like talking into a void because she doesn't care about the other person she's talking right. to. She doesn't care about their response. She wants them to know she's smart. She knows it. Shame <laughs> them. Check her phone. Who cares that another right. person's there? It's just about her existence. Right. I want to kind of wrap things up here, uh, sort of where we started talking about this memoir, which is really beautiful and really uh, very moving in the way that you talk about your cousin Owen. Um I'm wondering what it's been like for you in doing the publicity for this book to talk about him so much. Um, uh, Has that been cathartic for you or has it been re-traumatizing? No, um, it has been cathartic and it's sort of sometimes I'll cry, but I think uh, I think that's okay. And uh, this is a time where we sometimes cry and it's it's important to me that I get to share him and it's a gift every time I get to talk about him. Yeah. I was on, I was on his band's website last night. 
I'm really like, <laughs> vibing out to his music. I was like, this this comes up a lot in the book, so let's see what's going on. It's really cool stuff. I mean, this is it was an amazingly talented person, obviously. Yeah, it's it's so cool to me that people can find his music. And and I was talking with my uncle about it, and it's like what an amazing gift that Owen left us with these songs that we get to have this and share it. And like, thank God they're good. <laughs> That's I was nervous. I was nervous clicking on the link because I was like, this is obviously very important to Cecily. Right. Um, let's see. And then it was actually good. <laughs> yes. Makes it much easier to share. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Cecily Strong, great job on this memoir. It is titled, This Will All Be Over Soon. Uh, great job on Schmigadoon. And, um, you. you know, if you end up on SNL, we'll be watching. And if not, we'll be looking for whatever you get up to next. So well, thanks. thank you. Thanks so much for coming on Livewire. Thanks for having me. That was Cecily Strong right here on Livewire. Her memoir, This Will All Be Over Soon, is available now. Selfishly, we are hoping that she comes back to Saturday Night Live uh, this fall. But in the meantime, you can definitely uh, check her out on the Apple TV show, Schmigadoon, which is still Elena's favorite word to say. Hey, special thanks this episode to Julie Clark of Portland, Oregon. Julie is part of the Livewire member community and is generously supporting our show with a donation each month, which we are very thankful for because it's how we are able to do the show. So thank you, Julie, for keeping Livewire going. This is Livewire. Each week, we like to ask the Livewire listeners a question. This week, we asked, what is something that people would be surprised to learn about you? Because we learned some stuff about Cecily Strong we might not have assumed, and we're going to hear about uh, Shad's life, our musical artist, coming up in a few moments. So we asked the audience that. Elena's been collecting up those answers. What are some things about our Livewire audience, Elena, that people might be surprised to learn? Chris uh, has a pretty good one. Uh, Chris says, here's one I like to put out there just to see how the kids react. I am older than Google. (laughs) (laughs) Which, if you're a kid who was born, you know, you could even be like 25 years old. Uh, That might be kind of a shock. Yeah. I feel like it's a weird, I don't know if I want to say privilege or honor, but to be, I'm 45 years old, and to be in the generation that has very clear memories of no internet, mm-hmm. and now obviously lives every moment of their life on the internet, yeah. it's, I mean, that's, to be astride those two experiences is, is actually, I mean, I, I don't know what, like, to be a person who grew up without electricity and then yeah. had it, or before there were cars, I mean, it's, it's a pretty big change. I remember if you couldn't think of like the words to like an old TV theme song, you just had to sit there and suffer until it popped mm-hmm. into your head and it could take days or weeks or months, but there was no assist. There were just things that we might not know and that was okay. <laughs> All right. What's something else surprising about one of our listeners? Oh, I love this one from Rob. Rob says, I proposed to my wife of 35 years after only knowing her for 17 days. Wow, that's, boy. That's a little more than a fortnight. <laughs> that's an incredible return on investment. Mm-hmm. 17 I mean, days of knowing each other, and now you've gotten, what did he say, 33 years of marriage out of it? 35. Even better. I mean, that is like, talk about buying low. Yeah. That's a, that's a long, fruitful marriage for a very short initial investment. His gut is good. So bet yeah, the horses seriously. on Rob, on whatever yeah. Rob is backing. Exactly. And not me. <laughs> I'm the anti-Rob. 
Okay, uh, if you had to answer this question, Elena, what's something uh, about you that would be surprising to the listeners? Well, I know something <laughs> something that you're going to completely not be surprised to hear about me. Okay, all right. But maybe the listeners will, because I, I know you pretty well at this point. 50 bucks says no one is surprised by this. When I was a child uh, growing up, my imaginary friend was a mime. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't talk at all. <laughs> Do you think that was because even as a young child – you sort of just instinctively understood that you were going to be filling up enough of the conversation. Mm-hmm. That's why your imaginary friend, they didn't need to pitch in anything on the kind of verbal front. Yeah, no, yeah. And it's not like I had a bunch of brothers and sisters running around. I'm my mom's only kid, so I grew up in a house. I was the only one. And I just, even with my imaginary friend, I wanted to do all the talking. <laughs> Her name was Coco, Coco the Mime. <laughs> I feel like my reveal is almost the opposite of that, which is I have finally realized, I think, all these years later that I think I'm an instinctively shy person, mm. which is... Really, um, uh, probably not what people would expect considering the job stuff that I do. Yeah. Like, I have been always trying to position myself to where I'm on a stage, whether an actual stage or some sort of virtual stage, and people are paying attention to me. But I've also realized that a lot of time, like, if I'm in a room and there's a lot of people, the last thing I want most of the time is people to be focusing on me in any way. So you found a career of controlled social interaction to sort of so. in some ways like not take the place of but yeah. like if it's more chaotic or unpredictable social interaction it's something that you shy away from literally yeah like i mean i was i'll give you an example i was doing yoga many years ago i got dragged to a yoga session and i was i was in the back corner of the room because i didn't want anyone to see me doing yoga because i didn't know how to do it and this was like a hard class and at about four minutes into the class, the teacher said, okay, everyone rotate. And it turned out I was in the front of the class. Oh, I love it when that happens. And it was so mortifying. Well, if you ever need another friend to talk to, I can loan you Coco. So. Okay, <laughs> perfect. I'm channeling my inner Coco. I'd like to just be quietly in the background doing hand <laughs> signals. All right, let's invite our next guest over. The Guardian calls him Canada's nicest MC. Pitchfork called him the new standard bearer for positive rap. He's also the host of the Emmy Award-winning Netflix series Hip Hop Evolution, which is really good. It also won a Peabody Award, which is the classy one. Uh, And he knows radio, too, as the former host of the CBC's arts and culture show Q. He's now back with his sixth album, Tao, which is out this fall. Shad, welcome to Livewire. Thanks for having me. It's nice to see you, man. And uh, this new album is really good. I'm wondering when you first started writing uh, music and who were you trying to sound like? Was there someone that you were you were emulating up there in Toronto? So my heroes in high school were Common, um, Outkast, Lauren Hill, Biggie, um, a number of artists. And the weird thing is that they actually they inspired me to not rap, kind of like they inspired me to rap, but also not to rap because they were so good and they mm-hmm. had real things to say. And they really had their own story. And so in high school, I was just freestyling for fun because anytime I tried putting anything to paper, it was just, you know, it was nothing compared to them. So it was, it was a little bit later, maybe around 2021, I started to feel like I had stories that were my own. That's when I got more serious about it. So, yeah, to answer your question, that's who I was trying to emulate in the sense of, you know, having something to say, having my own, my own stories of my own style. But that, that obviously takes a bit of time. So you kind of needed to to have some life experience under your belt before you felt like you really had like substantial stuff to write about. 
Yes, I remember writing something in high school and and looking at it afterwards, and I was just mortified and was like, <laughs> I'll just freestyle in the cafeteria until I have something to say. <laughs> at least you had the presence of mind, you know, in the moment to sense you were still a little bit a little bit green. Also, thankfully, that was the era where you you couldn't record very easily, right? <laughs> right, because if it was now, we would have like thousands of shad TikTok videos. Yeah, there would be a million mixtapes, TikToks. I mean, yeah. Yeah, there'd be a lot to sort through. Um, I was reading some articles about you in preparation for this, and I noted that of maybe like the five articles I read, I think exactly five of them <laughs> referenced you being known for being a nice guy and I, I, in hip-hop. And I was wondering if, that, if that's a compliment still or if that's a little exhausting to keep hearing that kind of feedback. Well, look, I feel like it's true. <laughs> I'm a kind person. Um <laughs> My like kindergarten report card says Shad's a nice kid. It really like it actually does. Um, I like to make people feel good. It's a, I think that's a performer's instinct. You know, I think mm-hmm. that's an entertainer's instinct. You like to see people feel good. You like to make people feel better. So there are definitely worse things to be called. It's actually true, and uh, <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's it's fine. It's fine by me. And yet, hip hop. I mean, hip hop is uh, such a wide range of different styles of music and messages. And I think it would obviously be really reductive to say it's just about being tough or whatever. But there yes. is an element of that where that's a, that's something that is associated with, with parts of hip-hop. And you're coming in saying, like, hey, I want to talk about us getting along. I want to talk about thinking about people who are experiencing uh, you know, homelessness, stuff that you get into on your records. Yeah, well— what I learned really early on, again, like I'm from the era where you couldn't just record. It's a lot of live performances, a lot of battles and stuff. And what I learned early on is that it's actually all about the audience and winning over the audience with whatever your style is. So some mm. people's style is to be the baddest guy in the room. And like that is dope. And if you do that well, then you win. But also if you charm the hell out of everybody, you also win. So, you know, that's something I learned. It's, it's also a rule of hip hop, you know, and, and those are the early battle lessons that kind of like informed my approach. Um, so yeah, whatever you have to offer to engage people, you know, for me, it is talking about what's, what's on my mind, what's on my heart. I love to put humor in my music and humor in my style. And also I like to share my perspective when I feel like my perspective is a little bit different, you know, and I think people can tell that it's genuine. And, and so hopefully that's engaging. Like, yeah, I think I learned that early on. You got to You play the hand that you're dealt. Um, you've got this show on Netflix, hip hop evolution, which, uh, it won a Peabody It is just a really fascinating show, but it's also so ambitious. It's mm-hmm. sort of like the, the history of hip hop music and how so many things in hip hop sort of got created and the way that things play off of each other. It seems daunting to sit down and go like, we're going to try to document all of this because like such a big topic. Yeah. Um, So the way the show started was we actually thought we were only going to make one season. So we thought it would be a document of the origins of hip hop, you know, while these pioneers are still around. And in terms of scope, that is much more manageable because if you're talking about the beginnings of hip hop, there actually weren't that many people around. You're talking about the, Bronx in the mm-hmm. late, se- you know, the 70s. 
and that particular hip hop community. It's it's actually quite small and something that has been documented super well in books and something that you could capture on film. So after that first season, we got the opportunity to do more. And then, yes, it gets super, <laughs> super daunting. And mm. our writers and producers, I think, did a very good job of, well, the show shifted, I think, at that point and became an overview. You know, not nothing comprehensive, but this is this is a general overview of of how this music has moved and grown as it's landed from New York into different places and mixed with those different local cultures and um, what some of those spots brought to hip hop that was that was different and unique. And, you know, if we get a chance to continue the show, it will get even more daunting because you get mm-hmm. into the Internet era. Right. <laughs> we just do like four episodes on Juice World. Oh, yeah. And just like just talking about these like these SoundCloud rappers that have had this like amazing rise and impact now on the on the sound of things. Yeah, that's where I think the show would go. You know, ours is mapped out geographically. And I think what happened after the mid-2000s is that geography went to the internet. And new places on the internet changed the music. So that is almost certainly where the show would go um, in the future. Uh, You talked to some really heavy hitters on on this Netflix show, uh, like, uh, you know, Killer Mike and KRS-One and... Uh, Master P, among many others. Were you nervous? Like, you're this kid, you grew up in Toronto, you're rapping, you're listening to this music, you're making your own, and now you're talking to the people who are literally the founding members of it. Yeah, I was definitely nervous. Um, The good kind of nerves, you know, the proper respect kind of nerves for these artists and also for what we're trying to do with the show, which is just provide this useful document and hopefully do right by the culture there were a couple times though where um i was sort of surprised by what i felt in terms of nerves like q-tip uh-huh is one that jumped out at me because i was excited to interview q-tip nervous in the the good kind of nervous but when i was suddenly in front of him there i I, the thought occurred to me of how much i owe this guy Hmm. Uh, you know my career, my style, like this guy really opened the door for people to be different in hip hop. You know, I I think of hip hop sometimes as like a tree and Q-Tip is a, one of the major branches that a lot of people come out of or come out of the branches that come out of him. So, yeah, there were moments like that for sure. And that one stands out. Um, we're talking to Shad. His new album is Tao. Uh, he is a Juno award winning rapper. We got to take a quick break, so don't go anywhere. This is Livewire from PRX. We'll be back with more with Shad in just a moment. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one of a kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl grey use the code livewire all lowercase for 20% off at portaltea.co welcome back to livewire from prx i'm luke burbank here with elena passarello we're talking to shad uh, rapper and television host so you've got this new album, Tao, out. Um, and if I was reading correctly, your previous album, which kind of this one's building off of, 
uh, you were living in Vancouver, British Columbia, and uh, just kind of looking around and noticing just the, the sort of tremendous inequity in a place like that? So this one, uh, I started writing when I was in Toronto, okay. and it's much of the same situation. <laughs> um, but this one, I was thinking more about our humanity and the different aspects of our humanity and how each of those different aspects seem to be under threat. You know, um, for example, work, this even pre-pandemic work was getting more precarious and work was getting more scarce. Um, our connection to other people, of course, like moving online, social media, like that's becoming more two-dimensional and more fraught. And um, so that's where this album was inspired. But but that's also affected by so many economic pressures, right, that are the same in Toronto as they are in Vancouver. Toronto is a very expensive city, very unequal city. Yeah, but the album definitely seems pretty prescient, talking about the themes that are raised on the album. And, you know, and and that was all before the pandemic. So now, I mean, you listen to it and you think about how the last year and a half has unfolded and it sort of seems like you had a crystal ball or something. I mean, that was just stuff you were kind of thinking about and feeling. Yeah, totally. There's a friend of mine wrote this article early, early in the pandemic, and he said something like, um, the pandemic hasn't been a new situation as much as it's sort of taken the situation we were already in and like pushed it to its logical conclusions, right? We were already isolating ourselves more by just kind of being online and ordering Uber Eats and, you know, and now <laughs> that's all we can do. Um it's like so, the tide went out and you saw all the barnacles yes. <laughs> that were always living on the, the pier, but we just didn't see them as maybe as clearly, or some of us didn't. Exactly. Or the inequality, right? Like that was always there. And then the pandemic just pushed it to an almost absurd extent, right? So I think that's a little bit of why it feels, um, feels kind of prescient. I think this is the direction we were heading. We just hit fast forward. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, well, we're going to hear a song off of this uh, latest album, Tao. What song are we going to hear? This song's called Out of Touch. Anything uh, you'd like to uh, say context-wise about this song? Yeah, so Out of Touch is like, in talking about prescient, it's like maybe two on the nose now. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. And there is a line, actually, I say, uh, the the people is sick more than just a needle of fix. And this is way before the pandemic. I'm not an anti-vaxxer or anything. <laughs> okay, good. Well, that's, see, that's was, good context. I should, for... <laughs> I should asterisk preface, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, This, but the song's called Out of Touch. To me, it's like the thesis for the album, you know, because the album is about our humanity and these different parts of ourselves we seem to be losing touch with. So I, I, the song touches on a lot of different things and um, tried to make it some people can move to. All right, this is Shad on Livewire. Yeah. Uh, Canada heat getting hotter than a Panama beach In a Canada goose speaking of Canada beast Who's speaking Canada's truth? Who standing for peace? Slot from the home of the slaves in the land it was teeth Lot of broken and lost souls on this planet of freaks Supply and demand's the only commandment we preach Each man is a brand, each night famine and feast So we quote, I sell, therefore I am in these streets The people are sick, and nothing that a needle to fix we need presents, we just get receipts for the gifts 
playing God, we just gotta cease and desist. When our own souls wish that we would cease to exist, we out of touch now. Too out of touch now. Uh, in the six, like touchdown. I was tripping, I just touched down. In touch now. How we come along? Touch now. Attach the roots. I don't mean no metaphor. I'm talking about these packaged foods. Mass produce. Who's the most impacted group? Guess we the black and blue. Really, it's a question that's connected to the facts and truth. Lands and plants and passion fruits. We got crashing moods, diseases, and other attributes. Lack of direction from having no grasp of past and future. Attitude is numb. Plus, we love to escape. We love entertainment, especially if it's public disgrace. No love and embraces, and nothing is sacred. These public debates, discussions of late. No trust in the space, the drugs in the safe, the plugs in the wall, and all that to say, the main cause of all the suffering and hate. We out of touch now. Oh, too out of touch now. Uh-uh. In the six, like touchdown. I was tripping, I just touched down. In touch now. How we come along. Touch now. That's the way that it goes. Take any more. Need it to flow. Oh, we out of touch now. Too out of touch now. Touch now. That is Shad right here yeah. on Livewire, a new track off his new album, Tau. Shad, thank you so much, man. Hey, thank you. That was great. I appreciate it. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. We're going to be revisiting March of 2020, Uh-oh. which I know is kind of the demarcation <laughs> between the before times and the whatever it is we're still in. Uh, this was the last live show that huh? we did. We could have never known in those moments just how everything was about to change. And it was even more surreal than we could have known because the comedian Hari Kondabalu was filling in for you, Elena, because yes. you were feeling under the weather yes. in March of 2020. <laughs> I had some symptoms that we all know very well now. <laughs> but at the time, we just thought, Elena's trying to get out of doing the show. <laughs> Luckily, Hari was in town. He was able to fill in, uh, so we're going to present that show next week. Plus, we also talked to Sarah Scholes about UFOs, and in particular, UFO enthusiast culture, which is a really interesting topic of her book. Uh, then we're going to hear some music from the incredible Angelica Garcia, who really stunned our live audience. Again, our last live audience we've had in a long, long time. All right, that is going to do it for this week's episode of LiveWire. A huge thanks to our guests, Cecily Strong and Shad. Special thanks to Mike DeRolfi and Crispin Day for recording Shad for us up in Toronto. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. 
Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Paige Thomas is our social media manager. Woo! Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff this week. We'd like to thank member Julie Clark of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can catch our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.